All right, uh, Luke chapter 5. I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, this passage, Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. This is really an amazing section of, of Scripture. I'm so thankful that we have the chance to study it together. But I'll tell you one of the challenges, actually, with preaching a passage like this, uh, two of the challenges, actually, with preaching uh, a gospel especially. Uh, one challenge is that we are uh, kind of familiar with some of these stories, and yet we're far removed from them. And so uh, sometimes what happens is that we think we know what they're saying, but we actually don't know as well as we should. And it takes work to go back to hearing the stories the way they might have been originally heard. It, it's kind of like in my office. I have a sign or I have this little picture, and I placed it the wrong way, which I didn't know. And so I had it horizontal, and it was supposed to be uh, vertical. And my wife told me the other day, and at first when I fixed it, it felt strange because I had been looking at it one way for, for so long. And uh, seeing something differently than you've seen it before, even if it's right, is a challenge for sure. And then another challenge is just that there is so much in each one of these stories in Luke. They're full. Uh, but at the same time, there's like a flow to what Luke is, is doing. And so really there are all these connections, uh, like these verses that we're looking at now, actually, uh, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, they are connected to what Luke is doing all the way down to verse 32, at least. And so it would be nice to preach them all, all together because they all go together, and yet I feel like that's almost impossible. It would be like a four-hour sermon, and so you'll have to be uh, patient with me. Plus, uh, really, it's been a while since we've been in, in Luke uh, because of Easter and Mother's Day, and we're so thankful to have Isaiah preach. And so I want to take some time to set the context for you to understand what's going on in this section. And the way I want to set the context is by thinking about the word grace. So I've been thinking about the word grace a lot lately. And I know it's a familiar word for us as Christians. Even a lot of churches are named Grace Church. It's a big Bible word. It's a word that we use a lot in, in church. And we think of it now uh, probably mostly as a religious word. I don't know if people use the word grace that much out in the world. I guess people uh, sing amazing grace. But back in the days when the Bible was written, it was more of an everyday kind of word. And so there are some words in the Bible, because what God's doing is so big, that the writers of Scripture almost basically made up. Paul made up a lot of words because what he was trying to describe was just so new and different but there were other words obviously more words that they just used and explained and grace was a word they just used and explained and in everyday ordinary speech grace basically meant a gift or it could mean uh, that attitude of kindness you would have towards someone you when you were giving them that gift but grace revolved around the idea of gift, basically. And one reason I've been thinking about that word grace or gift is because I've been thinking about the way Luke introduces Jesus in Luke 1 to 4. We're in Luke 5 today, like I said. But in Luke 1 to 4, Luke has been introducing Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus. And I've been trying to think, how would you summarize what Luke's saying God is doing through Jesus if he had to do it quickly? And pastors aren't usually very good at, at doing things quickly. But one word, the, the main word you could use is salvation, because that's the word that uh, Luke uses. Saved, salvation, savior, keeps coming up. Another word which describes that salvation, though, might be the word gift or grace. So if we ask, what have we been looking at in Luke 1 to 4, we might answer, we've been looking at this gift this grace from God. And I feel pretty confident picking that word because that's a word that Paul uses in Titus 2.11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And he's talking about Jesus there. He's talking about the incarnation. He's not summarizing Luke 1-4, obviously, but he's talking about what's happening here in Luke and describing Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, as the grace of God, the gift of God. And one of the things that Luke has been trying to do in these opening chapters is give us a sense of just how big 
this gift is. Because that's the problem for a lot of us, I think. Uh, we shrink the gift that God's giving in Jesus down to an acceptable size, a manageable size, a size we might think would be more appropriate. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a white elephant Christmas party. Uh, I think that's what we call it, white elephant. And imagine you go to a white elephant party, and everyone says before you go, we're going to give gifts that are like $20. And so you make this agreement, okay, $20 gifts, which I guess with inflation is like a candy bar. But one person who's new, you don't really, you don't really know him, gives a diamond ring that's worth like $40,000. And so you open this present, and it's like this max, massive rock, and you gave like a box of Cracker Jacks or something. And all of a sudden, the party is, is just a little bit awkward because the gift is almost too big. And so what do we do? I don't know what we would do in that situation, really, but maybe we would think it's got to be fake. That might be one of our thoughts. This can't be real. Now, we wouldn't say that about the gift God's given us in Jesus, of course, but in real life, we can be like that, I think. It's so big, and we shrink it down to something that we think maybe seems more appropriate, more realistic. And... We get so used to thinking that way that we don't always even realize that we've kind of forgotten how big the gift really is. And there are different reasons for that, I'm sure, why that happens. One is just because when you see the size of the gift, it is shocking, the actual scope of, of salvation. If I said I was going to give you your own island, that wouldn't be bigger. That would be smaller. <laughs> I can't come up with a gift bigger. I remember uh, one time somebody gave us a brand new van. Can you believe it? A brand new van. And uh, it was someone we didn't know well at that point. And I remember getting off the phone, and I felt happy for sure, but not quite as happy as you might think I would have felt because I, I, couldn't just, I, I couldn't fully believe what he had just said. It was hard to process, and it took a while to sink in. And I actually talked to him, and I was like, but you know this about us, and you know this about us, right? Uh, you sure you have the right person here? And you can see how we might read about what God's doing through Jesus in Luke and wonder, did I hear that right? It can be hard to believe it's as big as it is, especially because we're not experiencing it fully yet. Sort of like me with the van. When I got off the phone call, part of me thought, I'll believe it when I experience it. And I had uh, conversations with myself even. Like I said, I, I thought, he must not have said it was new. Uh, or, or it must be a van that's falling apart. Because when we were younger, people liked to give us a lot of broken things for some reason. <laughs> and yet, of course, the difference with the gift God's given us in Jesus is that we're experiencing some of it right now, for sure. It's not totally future, but the fact is there's a lot more that is future. And because the gift is so big, what, and what God's doing in the future is so big, and we're not totally there yet, it's easy to shrink it down in the meantime. Like... Let's not get too excited. Let's be realistic. And one reason we can get away with that and keep coming to church, I think, is because we're just not that familiar with the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not pumping through our veins because the Old Testament is the antidote to a small view of salvation. It won't let you shrink down salvation. There was someone who once described the Old Testament as promises made and the New Testament as promises kept. And of course, you're gonna have a hard time understanding and appreciating the promises kept until you know the promises that were made, which is why it helps that Luke begins the gospel the way he does. Because he's like, let me tell you about this gift that God is giving in Jesus, the grace. And to do that, I'm gonna start by giving you a quick tour of some of the essential Old Testament highlights. And, you know, he starts talking about something called the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And he even goes back further at one point and talks about Adam. And then he talks about Isaiah and these things called the servant songs. I'm telling you, there's a lot there. But maybe the quickest way to summarize this salvation gift and how big it is is the way that Jesus does at the very end of Luke 4. Because Luke presents Jesus as a preacher and then he summarizes his message in verse 43 
where he says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And that is them looking at Jesus, the people of Capernaum, and, and thinking, the gift is that we're all going to be healed now. Let's keep Jesus here. And that's Jesus looking at them and saying, no, I, I've got to preach because the gift is actually even bigger than that. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's that phrase, the kingdom of God, that gives us a picture of what God is doing through Jesus. That's a, a summarizing phrase. And it deserves its own sermon, really, because it's sort of the theme of the whole Bible, the kingdom of God. When God made this world, he made it perfect. You read that in Genesis 1, and it is like God is crafting this perfect place. For who? For God to dwell with man. And his plan was to use man to rule over this world on his behalf. We were going to image him, work alongside of him, enjoy perfect fellowship with God, fill this earth with God's glory. And we're not going to go into all the details now, but it's a beautiful picture because we've got God, the creator of the world, and we've got a perfect place, and we've got God's people who are supposed to be living in that perfect place with a perfect God, perfectly under God's rule. And that's the kingdom of God, basically. But we know what comes next only two pages later. Man doesn't want God as king and breaks the world, which is why we're experiencing all the terrible consequences that we are right now. And yet God's plan from the beginning was to fix what man had broken and establish a kingdom where he could dwell with his people forever. And we get a, a glimpse of the way God's doing that in the rest of the Old Testament as we read about him choosing Israel and making these promises to Israel and bringing them into the promised land. But we also get an idea of the, the problem because people are so messed up and even Israel is so messed up that while they try to live with God for a while, they eventually do the same thing Adam did. They reject God. And so the Old Testament story ends really sad because Israel is in exile, basically, in the same place Adam was. And we wonder, how is God going to fix this? And you know, the, the prophets tell us how. You've got this story in the Old Testament and the explanation. And while the story ends sad, the prophets come and they announce good news. There is something bigger in store. And they give a glimpse of what God has planned. And Isaiah, in particular, tells us how it's going to happen and lays out a lot of the details. And that's why Jesus is going around preaching Isaiah and the good news of the kingdom of God. Because he is like, it's me. <laughs> it's me. That, that's why I'm here. I've come to fulfill all of these promises and establish the kingdom of God. And yet the way it went down, he gets crucified. And so Luke knows that statement needs some more explanation, which is part of why he's writing his gospel. Because we know now that Jesus is going to establish this kingdom a little differently than people expected. But the thing is, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. That is the good news. God is going to use Jesus to solve all the problems of the world, to recreate the world and to make it perfect. And to help us understand how he's going to do that, you remember Luke gives us this great picture at the end of chapter 3 of Jesus coming into the world and being like a second Adam. And then chapter 4, he tells us that he's taken by the Spirit of God to go into the wilderness and battle Satan because he's going to succeed where Adam failed. After which the Spirit takes him to Galilee and he starts preaching. And when he preaches, he picks a text from Isaiah about all this hope that I'm describing. And he says that he is the one who fulfills it. And then in case we're wondering if he really can do that, because you know he's saying he's the son of God, but he, he kind of looks like the son of Joseph. So in case we're wondering, Luke tells us some stories where Jesus proves he's got the ability to do it. As he's reversing the curse, and he's healing the sick, and he's casting out demons. And what Jesus is doing, it's, like, it's kind of like if you have really muddy water. Imagine you have really muddy water out in one of those lakes, maybe, where you can't even see the bottom. It's gross. And then imagine you drop a big tablet of chlorine in there. And somehow, all around that tablet, 
there's like a little circle zone where the water is perfectly pure. It's crystal. That's what's happening with Jesus. Everywhere he goes, things are going back to the way they're supposed to be. And it is a preview of what he's coming to do in the whole world. Which again is, is the point in case there's any confusion. And that's why the chapter ends the way it does, chapter 4. Because the people are like, you know, this is good. Let, let's keep you here. And our little part of the lake can be clean and amazing. And Jesus is like, no, there is a whole lake out there. I've come to purify the whole lake. This is just a preview, a glimpse of what I'm going to do. And that's why I have to preach the good news of the kingdom all throughout Israel. And in a sense, I think you could say that's the gift. We're, we're talking about grace as a gift. And the kingdom is this stunning gift. And yet it's a little hard to say it right because Jesus is the gift, really. But he's the king, and the king is associated with the kingdom. And so in Luke 1 to 4, Luke is looking at Jesus, and he's explaining to us, this is what he's coming to do. And he's trying to give us this big picture to expand our minds, to blow our minds. He's like, don't shrink salvation down. This is what salvation's all about. Reversal of the curse. It's huge. The fulfillment of all God's promises. That is how God's working through Jesus. It's like that's the gift that he's offering. And so the question is now, once we see that, and we're almost at Luke 5, but the question is now, who is that gift for then? If that is what God is doing through Jesus, bringing the kingdom, who is that kingdom for? Who gets to enjoy and experience that? Because it's a big gift, right? God working in the world like this. It's like God is saying, I am going to fix all the problems in the world. Sickness gone, death gone, wicked people punished. Everything, absolutely everything working the way it should. We're going back to the garden, but better. Me and people dwelling together in a perfect place forever. And we're wondering, who's God choosing to be part of that? You know, if that's what God is doing, who's he taking with him to be part of that kingdom? That is the biggest gift in the world, but who is the gift for? Which is really the question behind Luke 5, 1 to 32, I think. And there are a couple of reasons why that is an important question. So one reason is just our own personal stuff. Because we look at the gift, and we look at ourselves, and we think, is this gift really for me? Is that possible? And we should think that. You should definitely think that. If you're familiar with the Bible, it might be, is this kingdom really for me because I'm a Gentile, like I'm not a Jew? And if you're familiar with yourself, it might be, is this gift for me because I'm really such a sinner? How do I get to be part of that? Which is a, a good question. But if we step back and think about this gospel, there's another question that, that has to do more with the actual reason why Luke was written. So Luke was writing to someone named Theophilus, you remember. It's for us, of course, but he was writing to a particular person. And if you put yourself in the shoes of Theophilus for a minute, what questions did he have? Luke says he's writing so that Theophilus can be confident about what God's doing through Jesus. And so you have to ask, what would cause Theophilus not to be confident? And the biggest thing would be the cross, for sure. But there were other factors as well. And one, I'm not sure that we always appreciate, one thing that would have been really, really hard, especially if Theophilus was rich, like many people think he was, and if he was interested in Judaism at all, which he seems to have been, just because of the way Luke writes this gospel, one thing that would have been really hard was the makeup of the church, actually. So if you think, what would have caused Theophilus to question one thing that might have caused him to question was looking at people who were Christians. Because you remember how Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world. And he says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. And on top of that, by the end of the first century, most of them were Gentiles. The church was largely Gentile. And so imagine you're looking at these people who by and large were losers in the world's eyes. Not, not all of them, but a lot of them. And at the same time, you're seeing these promises, this gift that Jesus is coming to bring to accomplish, and it's big. God's making this kingdom, and he's going to fill it 
with people to enjoy and have a relationship with forever. And now follow me here. Because how's that going to be a temptation to be uncertain if you're Theophilus? Why is that a problem? And I know you maybe already have an answer in your mind. But I think you can understand even better when you understand how people in the ancient world thought about gifts and about generosity and about grace. So I'm making you work here, but this might be a new, new thought. It's been helpful to me to realize that not everybody thinks about gifts the same way. For example, most of us where we're from, we, when we think about gifts and when we think about being generous, like we think about the ideal giver, we think that a really generous person gives without any expectation of return. And so we've kind of disconnected gift from relationship, which maybe sounds weird. And you're like, now what are you talking about? So let me give you an illustration and see if you can follow. And this is something I realized this week that I never realized before while I was living in Africa. <laughs> because in Africa, I met a lot of people who were struggling and would be asking for help. And sometimes you would give financial help. You would be generous. You would give a gift. And as an American, when I think about doing that, about giving a gift, about being generous, I don't do it with any expectation of relationship, really. And I hate to say it, but actually, sometimes giving was a way of getting out of the relationship and feeling generous about myself. So it could almost be like, oh, this person is asking, and they keep asking, and they keep asking, and I just want to do something else, and yet they're in trouble, and I feel bad, so I'll give so they stop asking. That could almost be my expectation sometimes. But what would often happen in Africa instead is that the gift would be the start of a long-term relationship in their mind. And so the same person would come back over and over. And there would be times when they came back after years. I hadn't seen them for years. And they would show up. And honestly, I wouldn't even recognize them sometimes. But they would talk like we were long-lost friends. And I wonder now if part of what was happening is that they were viewing gifts more the way people in Jesus' day did. Because in Jesus' day, gifts were for relationship. They were tied to relationship. And so I would be tempted to think, in Africa, if I wasn't thinking right, I would be tempted to think, you know, why are you asking me again? Because I already gave you something. And yet they were thinking, I'm asking you again because you already gave me something, which has established this new relationship between you and me. Which, again, is more the way people in Jesus' day would have thought. And then a, a little later, Paul's day would have thought about gifts. That's part of what gifts were for. You showed your generosity, you showed your kindness to people by giving them gifts, for sure, but those gifts were tied to relationship. And you had expectations that after giving, there would be a stronger relationship. And so you were careful, now we're getting to the point, you were careful about who you gave those gifts to. You didn't just give them to anyone, because part of the purpose of giving gifts was to establish a better long-term relationship. And we can look down on that, of course, like that's so ungracious. There shouldn't be any strings when you give. And if there are strings, then you're not truly being generous because that's our ideal gift. But at the same time, if we were actually honest, that's probably more how we would function if we thought me giving this gift is me entering into a long-term relationship with someone. I mean, what are we going to do before we give gifts or show generosity if the gift connects us like that. What we're going to do is think very carefully about who we're giving the gift to. Of course, it's like, I'm happy to give this gift. I want to give a gift. I want to be generous. But I want to make sure that I give that gift to someone who is really worthy of it if it connects us like that. Maybe to use an illustration that makes it easier. It's like if you're given an island on which to build your own kingdom, and you get to choose who to take with you for the rest of your life, who are you choosing? I don't know, but you're probably going to be careful. If you're on an island with these people forever, you're probably choosing people you think are worthy of that. And so here, Luke has told us that Jesus is coming to preach the kingdom. And the question is, who's he choosing? What kind of people? And if you're... Theophilus, looking at the early church, you might be thinking, 
wait a second. Are you saying that he chose these people? I mean, did I really get this right? Because, you know, you're, you're looking at this slave sitting next to you and thinking, out of the whole world, these are the people that Jesus was coming for. And so Luke 5, Luke's like, let me take you back to how it got started. And what you're going to see is that this isn't a reason for uncertainty. It's a reason for certainty to be amazed by Jesus. The early church, the explosion of the early church, the makeup of the church, the fact that God is giving the kingdom to people like this is a testimony to the magnificence of Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus. The fact that the church is made up of all these people you would never expect God to show his grace to is reason for assurance about what God's doing through Jesus. But to understand why exactly, we need to look at Jesus' agenda from the beginning of his ministry. And now you remember how I said it would be great to preach Luke 5, verse 1 to 32, as one sermon? And don't worry, I'm not. But, but one reason it would be great is because it's sort of like a sandwich, this passage. And this is maybe one of those pastor things that you think is strange. But it helps when you're reading the Bible. There are ways that the author wrote to get his point across. And this section is like a sandwich. Verses 1 to 11... Look down at it. Verses 1 to 11, your Bible tries to help you a little by sectioning it off. Verses 1 to 11 and verses 27 to 32 are two pieces of bread on the outside of the sandwich. And verses 12 through 16 and verses 17 through 26 are the meat on the inside. But if you look at verses 27 through 32, and this is where the whole section is going... Jesus is calling a tax collector, and then he's having this big celebration with all these other tax collectors, a meal, fellowship. And the Pharisees are upset, and they're upset because this is not who they thought the kingdom was for. Jesus is out there announcing the kingdom. I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm fulfilling Isaiah. And one of the pictures of the kingdom in Isaiah is a banquet, a celebration. And yet Jesus is having a banquet with these sinners and that's not how the Pharisee thought it was supposed to work and listen you have to understand because I think we can get this wrong the problem with the Pharisees the problem they had was not that they didn't believe in grace at all they did believe grace to a certain extent the Pharisees they did believe in grace to a certain extent so like for example they would have believed it was a gift the kingdom that God was going to give this gift of the kingdom through the Messiah and that he was going to be generous and that it was going to be amazing. But who was he going to give it to? And this is key. He was going to give it to those who proved themselves worthy. And yet here, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's acting like the Messiah. And yet he's eating with people who were the opposite. Who were totally unworthy. Which to them made no sense. That's completely the opposite of how anyone worked. And so Jesus answers them, verse 32, and explains, this is not accidental. It is intentional. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that is a statement of mission, right? And if you connect that back to verse 43 of chapter 4, where Jesus is going out and saying, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now we're seeing what's motivating that. Who is this invitation for? I have got good news about this gift that God's giving, and I'm calling you to be part of that, to enjoy that. And who am I calling? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect or who you would expect the gift to be for. And you know, Theophilus is there in the early church, and he's looking around, and that's exactly what happened. Because the people who are Christians are all these sinners. And even the ones you wouldn't think are sinners, like the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew and was blameless, when he shares his testimony, you know what he does? He groups himself with the sinners. I am the chief of sinners. And so now Luke's like, let me tell you how that happened and how that's possible. And this should cause you to worship because it's Jesus. And I'm going to tell you in parts how this happened. Verses 1 to 11, verses 12 through 16, and verses 12, 17 through 26 show how we can be confident 
and certain this gift of the kingdom is for sinners and why we can be confident Jesus has the ability to make that happen. But today we're looking at verses 1 to 11, and we're going to start by looking at the man who, from a human perspective, people might think would have been most responsible, at least for the beginning of the church. And for me, this is so cool, because I've looked at this passage before, basically as the story of Simon's conversion. And so I've used it as an example of what happens when a person becomes a Christian. And uh, that sermon might even have been a little simpler. You might have wished that's how I would preach it. And there is something to that, but I've always kind of felt like I'm not quite hitting on what's going on in the passage. So it, it, I was telling Marta, it feels like someone's singing a note, and it's close to the right note, but not quite, if I could actually tell that. <laughs> but that's what it's like. I can imagine it would be like. Because if you look at this story, it's really the story of Simon's call to ministry. Because what does Jesus say at the end, verse 10? And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Which, if you're sitting there reading this from Theophilus' perspective, is definitely something he saw happen. Simon caught men. And this Simon, you probably know, is Simon Peter, who was super famous in the early church. And even now, I was thinking, if you were going to pick two or three of the most important individuals in the New Testament beside Jesus, you would pick Peter, no doubt, right? Simon. In fact, bigger than that, if you're going to line up all the people throughout church history in terms of importance, Simon would be near the beginning of the line. So if you're at all sympathetic to Christianity and you're Theophilus living back in the first century and you're thinking about Peter, he's a big deal. Obviously, Peter comes to speak at a conference in the early church. Everybody shows up. And we see that when we get to the book of Acts. As Luke tells the story of the early church, he hardly talks about most of the apostles, but he spends most of his time talking about Peter and then about Paul. In fact, he's got this really interesting thing he does where he shows Peter doing a lot of the things Jesus did, and then he shows Paul doing a lot of the things Peter did. Peter is the one who leads the church to choose the 12th apostle in Acts 1. He's the one who preaches the sermon at Pentecost where 3,000 people are saved. He has an impact on the Jewish church and And not just the Jews, he's the one God sends in Acts 10 to take the gospel to a Gentile and convince the church the gospel is for Gentiles, which changes the trajectory of the church in Acts. He's foundational. In Galatians, Paul calls Peter one of the three pillars of the church, which makes sense because Jesus talks about Peter as a rock in this section where he talks about the rock on which he's going to build his church. So you don't get much bigger than Peter, than Simon. You're looking back at the early church. You think Peter, you think Paul. You know, as Jesus is dying on the cross, there's hardly anyone willing to say they're his followers. And yet here we are now, and there are billions of people who say they are Christians, and a lot of it had to do with Peter. And so you've got to ask, how did that happen? Because we would typically think, Peter, was it something about Peter? Luke says, on one occasion, this is how it happened, Luke 5, verse 1, on one occasion, which is very similar to how he begins verses 12 and 17, and that's part of how we know these stories are connected. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, which is a real-life illustration of what Luke's told us in chapter 4 about Jesus being this popular preacher, and he was so popular that large crowds came out to hear him, and they were kind of desperate to get close to him. It was like he was a celebrity. They're pressing in against him to the point where he was surrounded, and he has something to say now, and he wants to make sure that everybody is able to hear because he's not like in this small inside building like a synagogue or or something right now instead he's by a lake Luke says he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret which is another name for the sea of Galilee it's like when you go to any area for the first time you you might know a place by one name but the people there often have different names they call it and so Galilee was the region uh, this sea or or better lake because it wasn't that big actually was located and so some people referred to it like that the sea of Galilee But Gennesaret was a town on the edge of the lake, and so some people called it that. But either way, Jesus is standing on its edge, and he was being crowded, and so he looked for a boat to get a little distance so he could speak to everyone and have them hear him. And Luke says he found two. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And that kind of makes it sound like these were random fishermen if you read that first verse. It doesn't even sound like they were part of the crowd. And so it's not like they had come to hear Jesus preach that day necessarily. They were just going about their business and at this point finishing it up. 
But of course, we know they weren't random, really. And this wasn't an accidental meeting because Luke tells us one of the boats was Simon's. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put a little out a little from the land. And, and Simon is someone Luke's already introduced us to back in chapter 4. You remember how he says, after Jesus had finished preaching at Capernaum and casting out the demon, he went to Simon's house. So Jesus knew Simon, and, and Mark tells us Andrew, James, and John were there too, which means Jesus had a relationship with these men. They had heard Jesus preach before. In fact, John tells us in John 1 that maybe about a year before what we're reading in Luke, Simon's brother Andrew had been listening to John the Baptist preach when he met Jesus for the first time. And Andrew got so excited about Jesus that he went and found his brother Simon and brought him to meet Jesus as well, which means Simon, Andrew, James, and John were interested in Jesus already and were excited about Jesus. But they're still pictured here in Luke as kind of being alongside everybody else. They're not apostles yet. They're still fishermen. And here they are on the side of the crowd, washing their nets, listening, when we see Jesus gets into Simon's boat and starts to, to preach. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for the catch. Which must have caught Simon off guard, I'm sure, because Simon was a fisherman and Jesus, of course, wasn't. And Simon, he's been fishing his whole life. So he was born in a place called Bethsaida, which was right near Capernaum, right next to this lake which meant he had been fishing here for his entire life. This was like his spot. And at this point, he wasn't a, a child. He had a wife a, and a mother-in-law, and he was the one who was in charge of this boat. He was the one telling others what to do. And he was, as, as we know, a, a very brash and bold individual, meaning he wasn't shy. And at this point, he has to be fairly tired, actually, because as he tells Jesus, he and his friends had toiled all night. They had worked to the point of exhaustion trying to catch fish and the thing is they had nothing to show for it which maybe doesn't strike us at first but you have to know how frustrating that must have been because fish equaled money for them this wasn't pleasure fishing this was business and they had gone out and worked all night and were coming back with with nothing which in and of itself had to be somewhat unusual and what's more before they could get home Jesus had asked to use one of their boats and, and preach. We don't know how long. And so here they were sitting in the sun because there's not usually much shade when you're sitting in a boat on a lake and they're sweaty, tired, and disappointed. And now here, just as Jesus has finally finished preaching, now he's asking them after they've already cleaned their nets and closed up shop, shop to put their nets back in which from a human perspective would not have made any sense because it was probably midday at this point and there was a reason they fished at night because that's when fish were out. And if they didn't catch any fish when the fish were out, how could they expect to catch any fish when they, when they weren't? Which is why Simon responds, Master, we toiled all night and we caught nothing. Look, of course, I don't know if Simon was annoyed by the request. It almost sounds like it to me. At, at the very least, he must have been tempted to think, Jesus, you, you know, I'm actually a fisherman, and I've kind of been doing this my whole life. I'm a fisherman, and the son of a fisherman, and the grandson of a fisherman. And so if you want to sit in my boat and teach the people the Bible, that's okay. That's your thing. But maybe, maybe don't start giving me fishing advice, because I sort of know how to do all that, because that's my thing. I'm the fisherman. And if I remember right, you're not. You're a carpenter's son. And so I know maybe this doesn't seem like a huge request, put down your nets, but you know what? This is real life, and this is a command that basically makes no sense. Jesus is asking him to do something that seems 100% pointless, and yet that is actually the point, because at this moment, Simon has to make some sort of decision. Because it's like he's got his own knowledge and his own experience on this side, and he's got what Jesus is asking him to do on this side. And so he's got to make a choice. And it's not so easy. As you can keep reading, you can almost hear the reluctance in Simon's voice. Verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Which I think is one of the most important phrases in the whole story, really. But at your word. Because from a human perspective, there is no way Simon is saying yes to Jesus. 
And yet here, Simon submits himself to the authority of Jesus. At your word. And what happens? A miracle, Luke tells us in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boat, so, both boats so that they began to sink. Which is pretty funny, the whole scene, actually. And you sort of have to picture this, because here's Simon out there on this boat, and Jesus issues this command, and Simon's like, okay, guys, whatever, let's just do this for Jesus. And maybe his eyebrows are raised a little bit, and his shoulders slump like I, my shoulders slump when I have to do something I don't want to do, <laughs> especially when I was a young husband. And he tells, I've learned to raise the shoulders and, and smile more when I'm taking out the trash now, but, uh, or have a son who takes the trash. Oh, now I'm off. <laughs> And he tells the people who are, are working for him, Simon, shoulder slump, let's, let's uh, row uh, a little further in here. And they're like, uh, Simon, are you really listening to this, this carpenter? Because I, I kind of want to get home to my wife. It's almost time for dinner. But he's in charge, and so they do what he says, and they put the nets down. And it's like instantly they catch so many fish that their nets start breaking. And these were nets made for fishing, I'm sure. So this had to be a lot of fish. And there were so many, actually, that even though Simon Peter must have been a strong man and the others with him as well, they weren't even able to bring the nets the whole way back up because it was too much. And so it's like they're all trying to hold the net with one arm while they're frantically waving the other arm to their partners on shore. Please come and help. And you can imagine the partners because maybe they're back on shore and, and they're looking out there, they're squinting into the sun, and they're like, what is he doing? You're, you're, like, you're like going the wrong way, man. Wait, 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 why are they letting down their nets? We just washed those, Simon. And then all of a sudden they see Peter's like jerked into the water and his head is spinning around and he's looking at them and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, are you kidding me? Get out of here. I've never seen anything like this. And so James and John, and if they had anyone working for them, jump into their boat and they're like laughing and they're hitting each other and they start rowing out to where Peter was and they get there and they can't believe what they're seeing because there are fish everywhere and they throw their net out too and they end up filling both the boats, which was seriously a lot of fish because these boats were like 20 or 30 feet long. Not huge, but not small. And remember, fish equals money for them. This was their business. So this is like money shooting out of an ATM, basically. And there is so much of it that their boats begin to sink, which, of course, is not how things normally work. This is a miracle. This is Jesus exercising complete authority over nature here. Maybe you remember how Adam was supposed to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea. Well, Jesus is literally doing that in a broken world in a supernatural way. It's a miracle, like I keep saying, and yet it's a little bit of a funny miracle. Because usually Jesus does miracles when there's a crisis, like a sickness or, or a demon. And not catching fish one night is not much of a crisis. It's, it's kind of a disappointing, but it's not really a crisis. And so you have to ask, why did Jesus do this miracle? And there are a couple good suggestions, but ultimately, if you're Theophilus, I think if you're the one reading this letter, what does this miracle do for you? It's an audiovisual. It's like an illustration, a picture of what God, you knew God intended to do with Simon and Andrew and James and John, especially because Jesus goes on and makes that connection. He says, you're catching fish, but don't be afraid because from now on, you're going to be catching men. And so it's kind of like, again, if you're Theophilus and you're looking around at people who have become Christians and you're wondering, how did this happen? Because it's a real question. It's legitimately amazing that anyone became a Christian in the first century. In fact, there's a book someone wrote, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? That must have been the subtitle. That's a long title. And that, that's a good question, though, because there wasn't any economic advantage. There wasn't any political advantage. There wasn't any social advantage, and yet many people did. The impossible happened. How? The way that we work as humans, we probably would start by thinking, it must have been something about Peter, or it must have been something about the apostles, something unusual about these men. And Luke's like, no, no, please. Let me take you back to the beginning to see what's happening. And to help, I'll show you this picture here. Imagine fishing. Imagine Simon out there by himself all night, and he couldn't catch any fish, and then all of a sudden he catches so many you can't even count them. Why? How did that happen? It's not Simon. 
It's Jesus. God orchestrated the very real events of Simon's life to, to picture that. And clearly Simon knew that. In fact, that, that's like the one thing Simon had going for him. He knew that because in the midst of all this chaos with these flish, fish <laughs> flying everywhere and nets starting to break and, and boats beginning to sink and his friends like cheering and laughing, I'm sure, where's Simon? Verse 8, Simon's on his knees. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Which is an unusual reaction. Get out of my boat, because I'm a sinful man. And it's unusual because this is like the best day of Simon's life financially. And so you might have expected him to respond like the people in Capernaum responded, who when Jesus started doing miracles, didn't want Jesus to go because they wanted him to be their resident miracle worker. But Simon's response is different, and it's partly because he's starting to see what this means about Jesus. And of course, I'm not sure of everything that's going on in his mind, but I, I think it's dawning on him who Jesus actually is and what Jesus is actually coming to do. And he sees this glorious, magnificent, beautiful, awesome, powerful Jesus. And he has a sense of this great and grand gift that God is offering through Jesus. And the weight of all this just breaks him to the point where he doesn't even notice that his boat is sinking. And he doesn't even hear his friends laughing. And he doesn't even think about what this catch of fish might mean for him financially. He just sees Jesus. And seeing Jesus, he sees himself. And he feels this great sense of unworthiness to be in his presence. And he's like, this is not how it's supposed to work. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I'm not the kind of person who should be receiving this kind of gift. I'm not worthy. And remember, this is Simon. And think about him, again, from the perspective of Theophilus there in the early church. Because if we didn't know Simon before Pentecost, say we're 20 years into the early church, and we only knew Simon after, we might think Simon's in a category way above us. And, and so Luke is showing us, no, that is not how God's grace works. And if you wonder about that, let me introduce you to one of the most important men in the history of the church. And what does he say when he figures out what's going on with Jesus? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And yet here's the amazing thing. That did not turn Jesus away from him. Because it would have the Pharisees. It absolutely would have. And it would have most everyone else in the ancient world because everyone, absolutely everyone, assumed this is how gifts work. All good gifts were given on the basis of something. All good gifts were given to those considered worthy of them by one criterion or another. But that's not how the gospel works. That's not how God's wor God works. And actually, if you weren't a Christian and you were looking at Simon later, this might be something you would bring up to someone like Theophilus as an objection. Like, you mean, okay, let me get this straight, uh, Theophilus. You're telling me this man, Simon, this great leader of the church, this is, this is one of the great leaders of the church. Really? You mean that when God came into the world as a man to give this big gift of an eternal kingdom, he chose people like this Jewish fisherman to be his representative? He wants people like that to be part of his kingdom? And you know, at first, Simon would have agreed. It can't be for people like me. He's telling Jesus to get away. And if that causes Theophilus to be uncertain at all, you know what Luke says? Luke says, you're missing the point. Because this shouldn't cause you to be uncertain. It should cause you to be more certain. Because you know why all this happened? It happened as a fulfillment of Jesus' word. I mean, this is deliberate. So intentional. You look at Simon, and now you look at the church. And you ask, how did this happen? How come all these people are followers of Jesus? Because it's clearly not Simon. It's Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon, verse 10, and he says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
And even though on the boat that day, that must have sounded impossible, that's exactly what happened, which is one reason we have hope. We have hope because God is generous. He, he has this grace, this amazing grace, this mind-blowing gift that he's going to give through Jesus. And who's he going to give it to? This is a kingdom for the unworthy. And that's not just something that happened. That is something that Jesus made happen. Our Savior made that happen. He came to call sinners to repentance, and he chose sinners to help him do that, like Simon. We look back, and you know what his testimony is? I was totally unworthy, but Jesus chose him. He specifically chose an unworthy person to be the one who takes his message out and calls other unworthy people to participate in God's grace. And he did, Simon. This promise was fulfilled, which is actually a big part of why we're here today. But you know, there's a question you should be asking now. If God is going to give this gift to the unworthy, how? How is that possible? How can Jesus give the kingdom to people like that when God is holy? And to answer that, you're going to have to come back next week. Because that's what the next two stories are about. Let's pray. What do we say to a God like this who gives gifts to the unworthy like this? It is revolutionary. It's totally different than how we work as humans. And yet what good news, Lord, what good news that you're a God who shows grace to those who are absolutely unworthy of it. And if we ever question that, we can just look back to the beginning of the church. And what do we see? Simon, depart from me, I'm an unworthy man. Paul, I'm, a chi I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, Lord, that's our testimony too. Help us not to forget how big this gift you're giving to us is in Jesus. And Lord, make these hearts appreciate it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.